All right, today I'm honoured to have the chance to speak to a well-esteemed Doctor of Education, Dr Tony Robinson. I've had the privilege of being a part of the Learning for Life program at Gilson College over the last two years, of which Tony had a key role in founding 13 years ago. 13 years ago? That's right? that's right. Um, Over this time, I've got to know an incredibly wise man, someone with great humility and someone who has much insight to share with the world. So it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Tony Robinson. Thank you, Braden. Yeah, um, don't, don't know that that really describes me correctly, but uh, that's fine. Happy what, to share. What would you change in your own introduction? Uh, well, I don't know. It's not how I view myself. I know I just try and be uh, who I am and be uh, contribute in whatever way I can here at school and uh, in life and in community in general. Yeah. Yeah, great. Well, that's... Yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's the humble part coming out, I guess. Um, yeah, I've had some... Well, I, I wrote that down because it's really meaningful to me. I'm, like, we've had some great times and um, this program at Gilson College that um, I've had the pleasure of being a part of over the last few years, you had a key role in founding. Um, so would you just be able to share a bit about learning for life, what it is, the idea where it ca- the idea came from and all of that. I've been a, uh, a teacher for uh, quite a long time and when I first came to Gilson College at Taylor's Hill uh, 17 years ago, uh, it was obvious that we needed to do something uh, with the 13, 14, 15 year old age group. Um, boys particularly were a uh, cause of worry and no teachers, probably still the same, no teachers really ever want to uh, commit to a year nine class. That's the one that uh, most teachers don't want. And so I, having been working with this age group most of my teaching life, um, I've been thinking about many ways that we could, the best thing we could do for them. I'm not alone in this. There are many teachers, many schools who have been working on this uh, and developed programs uh, to work with this age cohort. And so I met up with three other teachers here at Gilson College, uh, Dr Tim Pope, his wife Wendy, and uh, Lex Goodchild. And in um, in 2002, when I first came, towards the end of the year, we got together and started talking through 2003 uh, of ways that we could possibly come up with uh, that would uh, help us work with this age group. And so in 2004, we formalised a group of us, the four of us together, and then uh, Romlin Cowled and Chris Cowled joined and we came up with a, uh, with a suggestion of a program that we now called Learning for Life. And what that entails is taking the students uh, for expeditions, bushwalking, where they uh, have to carry their packs, carry their food, uh, cooking, and fend for themselves for up to, uh, for now, up to seven days. But back then, it was a planning for a trip or leading up to a trip to Tasmania. That was done specifically and we focused on that first because we wanted the 14-year-olds, which most of them are in beginning of year nine, to develop a sense of confidence, self-confidence based on real experiences, authentic experiences. And so uh, we found that the bush, walking in the bush, and having to walk in the bush for an extended period of time is one of the best ways to yep. bring about a confidence built on real-to-life experiences. And so that's where the program began. And uh, in 2005, it was introduced here at Gilson College. And uh, from 2007, I've been personally uh, involved and coordinated and help develop the program to what it is today. Hmm. The many changes have happened over that time. Um, But initially, 
we had the program uh, set up to be expeditionary learning, um, trips to the city, which we now call urban learning, and then service to the community, which we call service learning. And uh, those three components are the backbone of the program. And then basically it's around those three streams that the rest of the year nine program for the year, the Learning for Life program, uh, centres. As much as we can, the traditional curriculum is followed when teaching, but, uh, but we link it uh, to the activities that are happening in the uh, Learning for Life program. And uh, we know it's necessary, uh, and I've done my study, my doctoral studies was done, uh, I did on this um, age cohort. What, yep. what is it these about 14-year-olds that are special? Why do they need something different? And uh, the research... And the literature shows that 14-year-old boys particularly, for girls it's usually a year or a year and a half earlier, um, their brain is undergoing huge changes. Uh, neurons are being, and the connections, synapses they're called in their brain are being pruned at an enormous rate, tens of thousands a second. New ones are being formed. And they literally, uh, a 14-year-old boy will literally not remember things that they've been told uh, a few minutes even, yep. or uh, especially the next day, because it's not important. It's not where their centre of attention is. And so we focus on values and reinforce those values across the year, the things that we've, we consider important for the development and the growth uh, and the maturity of a uh, of young adolescence, and so basically, learning for life program is about that, giving the uh, the young students, the young people, the fourteen year olds, the year nine students at Gilson College, the opportunity to grow, develop, and mature, take risks in an in controlled, uh, safe environment. But the risks are, are real. They need to be uh, ones where they actually do require physical, uh, emotional uh, energy and effort uh, on the part of the people involved in it. So they are authentic in that in that sense. And so we start the year out with the uh, telling our students that. This program is about them, that it's about for them. It is not anything for them to be afraid of, but it is something that they'll have to work at and participate in and actually um, commit to. And we've found that by the end of the year, most of these students have actually uh, grown significantly. They come in as children young adolescents and leave after the uh, nine or ten months of the program as uh, a much more mature young people which yeah. we're encouraged and enlightened with. I've seen that firsthand. Yeah. Um, things that have happened along the way, uh, we've, in, we've included many things, uh, changed, adapted, but currently the program runs alongside or parallel with a rite of passage which is about taking the young people through a series of uh, steps I suppose we would call it that uh, as traditionally happens in in cultures all around the world Western society doesn't appear to have a real uh, process or program which with which young people go through to prepare them for what it means to be an adult. And so we've introduced a rite of passage, we call it Journey for Life program, as runs parallel to the within the Learning for Life program. And this journey is for them to be participate in a calling, uh, a departure, to have challenges and followings, 
have a big challenge, have a return, celebrate a return and then a homecoming and that whole process occurs across the course of the Learning for Life program in the year. Its culmination is a um, seven day expedition where they carry their packs, their food, their shelter for six nights and seven days in the high country of Victoria. And uh, those students who participate in that program, uh, even though it's been hard for them, uh, have all expressed the value of, of, being, of participating in that. Don't know what else we need to uh, we need to do for these kids. Uh, need to, as I say, give them. I said before, give them authentic experiences in a uh, in an environment where they are safe, that they can take risks uh, without uh, without endangering themselves or others too much. Um, as a teacher, uh, and as a retiring teacher now, it's, it, it's gratifying to see the changes that these young people have undergone and do undergo by going through a program like this. And this program is not unique to Gilson College. Victoria, as a uh, as a as a state, has significant number of different programs that schools have set up probably world leading it's uh, there are more programs in I think for in schools in Victoria than any other place that I'm aware of in the world really every just about if not every school has some sort of uh, uh, program where the year nine students are taken out uh, from their normal school practice to give them a chance to um, to experience life and to give them the opportunity to realise or let them know that they are what they are going through is not unique, but it is important, and they do need they there is someone there to go through it with them. Um, the a young adolescent needs to learn that. The things that they are feeling, the things that they are experiencing are okay and they mm. need to know that there are adults with them that are there beside them uh, to help them through uh, and be there for them while they're going through things and are there for, for them at the end. Um, we take them out of the classroom, traditional classroom, uh, for about 45 days across the year. Yep. Um, during that time, we say they're still in a classroom. They're not in a, they're not in a traditional classroom. Uh, call it in a classroom without walls. We still have high expectations of them. We still expect them to behave as Gilston College students. Uh, and yep. we, uh, if, if, even if they're on public transport going to the city, they're carrying backpacks around uh, the high country of Victoria or they're working with uh, preschools or planting or weeding in the, uh, uh, with people down in Warrnambool area. They are still learning, uh, they are still expected to maintain values but they can still have fun mm. no matter where they are and what they're doing. Um, We need to uh, also get across to these young people that behaviour, respect, the four R, the three R's. Sorry, we have here at Gilson College of uh, our uh, positive behaviour program of respect, responsibility, and resilience are important values to have for to be contributing positive, contributing members of society which is uh, not always expressed that well in, um, by, many of their, uh, many of their, uh, by many adults in the world. And so in our 
Journey for Life program across the year. Our students are divided into uh, gender-based groups and they meet in smaller group numbers uh, with an adult and uh, discuss what it means to be a man or a woman in society, what the expectations are, how to treat each other with respect, responsibility and, and resilience. And that is a helpful time to, uh, to answer questions that may come up in a safe, caring environment yep. uh, and where young people will learn, have do learn how to behave, uh, what is expected if you, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. And so we look at many experiences, use current media reports where misbehaviour has occurred in society and draw on that to as, uh, as an example of how not to behave in society. And so our world in its current form is obviously uh, not always a safe place to be. Uh, the values in which our Western democ democracy is uh, based are not necessarily or they're not the most positive and the best way that um, within which to mature. And so young people without, um, without a mentor will often repeat the mistakes that or do the things that just comes naturally without having to think through or without thinking through what the, uh, what the best thing might be to do in a given situation. And so what a mature person might do will be different to what an immature person will do, but how do they know the difference? And so we try and give them the opportunity to uh, talk through some of these things and present ways of uh, thinking, uh, ways of behaving that an adult will be. Um, Richard Raw, a Franciscan monk from, uh, from New Mexico and in the United States, uh, wrote and writes, has written and still continues to write a number of books relating to um, uh, maturity and uh, particularly male uh, growth, male um, behaviour. And he makes the comment that a, a man will always take advantage of his situation, uh, always take advantage of his power if he's never been mentored into maturity, never been mentored into adulthood. And in the Learning for Life program, we try and give these young men and the... Uh, female teachers try and give the young women the examples of what it will be to be uh, behave in a mature and adult way. Adam's Return is a book that Richard Raw wrote regarding the idea of men and how we need to be uh, mentored into right behaviour because our research shows that our male brain does not develop fully until we're at least 25 years old. And so if that's the case, um, many young men continue to need mentorship right up through until their uh, late teens, early 20s, so that the choices they make will be the most sensible and the best for them and those around them. Uh, unfortunately, our society doesn't provide the greatest... Uh, examples of security for that and so we get our uh, we get our driver's license when we're 18 we're allowed to legally drink when we're 18 drink alcohol when we're 18 and both of those things while they are liberating uh, they are also cause for concern if you're not able to make choices that are the um, the best and most positive uh, without considering the consequences of those choices. Um, 
where do you want to go? No, that's fine. Um, yeah, I love just listening to this. Um, it's profound. Uh, a question I had was when you were started, when you started the Learning for Life program, um, you're obviously challenging traditional education um, from a whole heap of different points. Did you find, did you have any challenges implementing the program at um, Gilson College or um, just in general from the education community? The idea uh, of introducing the program um, came out of, the, as I mentioned right at the beginning, the four of, uh, four of us sitting down working out something that we could do to help uh, that might be the best for these 14-year-old boys, particularly at that time we were thinking about. Yep. But it's just as important for the girls as it is for boys. Oh, yeah. And so um, one of the few things I would say when we presented this idea of what our program might be to the staff meeting, secondary staff at the time in 2004, it was unanimous that we do something like this. All yep. staff agreed yeah, that wow. something had to be done or something, this seemed like a good thing or a good intervention. Um, the other thing that needs to be considered, uh, and we thought about this uh, uh, quite deeply, how do you get school administration on side because it's e expensive not just economically but it is also time expensive uh, costly for people involved mm. but fortunately here i've had the principal of the school uh, the college has been incredibly supportive and totally so for the first uh, eight years of the program he was on every one of the camps oh, that right. we went on uh, the only reason he's not on them still is because of his further study. Yeah. Uh, but I, he been, he tells me that he will be back as soon as that's finished. He did mention that, I heard. Yeah. And so a couple of things need to note, I guess. Staff need to be on board, but they all were here. They could see the need. Yeah. And also um, administration because uh, they are important for implementing and the structures and the systems in place, giving, letting them uh, or putting them in place so it can work. Mm. The final obstacle or consideration uh, is parents. The idea that uh, where you will take or offering to take their sons and daughters, precious sons and daughters, away from them for s up to 11 days is sometimes a challenge for parents and uh, uh, and some are unable to meet that challenge and so they don't encourage their children to participate or give them the uh, or give them the opportunity to do so which is disappointing because we've seen in almost every case significant changes in young people who participate fully in this program um, the world's changing as well, though. The idea of uh, risk, yep. risk management, uh, minimising risk, uh, keeping the young people safe, communicating uh, with, uh, with authorities, uh, with parents uh, about what is going on and uh, what to do if an issue arises and things like that. Mm. And so we've set in place... Um, systems and procedures to uh, to help deal with this every group that we go out into the bush with carries a uh, radio at least one radio or two radios where they can communicate handheld radios with each other and a coordinator of the program uh, they all have gps's they all have maps and compasses or access to them and they also carry uh, some technology that signals back to a central spot where they are uh, and their current condition and if there is an issue they've got a button to push to help them if needed uh, and so we've uh, managing the risk yes managing risk is important um, but risk has to happen yeah uh, everyone takes risks and statistics show the actual likelihood 
of anyone getting injured, seriously injured, uh, while in the bush is very, very remote. But that doesn't alleviate the concern of parents, and rightly so. We need to uh, do the best we can to communicate that mm. everything's all right. Um, mobile technology is a really valuable asset to have, but it also causes a number of concerns. And so one of the things we implemented from the very beginning and continue to do so, do so is that none of the participants are able to or allowed to carry with them their mobile phones. Um, cutting off technology and the the confidence or the uh, yeah the, the self or the confidence that being able to con connect with the outside world uh, is really a false confidence. The world goes on whether you know about it or not, <laughs> and the idea that being able to connect with social media or news or whatever it might be. Um, Breaking that cycle is a valuable component on this uh, or valuable part of this uh, whole developmental process and developing a confidence in your, uh, in your ability, in yourself that is not dependent on technology but it's de dependent on your being able to use your brain for yourself, yep. think through issues, think through things not do a, a quick Google search. Mm. It's a valuable process for you in the current world, we think. Develop your own brain to think. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Mm. Um, so with your doctorate, did you do that prior to the program or was that after? No, I didn't. Um, the program began in 2005 yep. and Dr Pope, Tim Pope and his wife Wendy uh, and Chris and Bronwyn Cowled particularly looked after that program. Tim coordinated the program yep. for two th 2005, 2006. So he was a doctor at that point? Not at that point. Not at that That's point. Happened, uh, that happened since. Yep. Um, 2007, we had to rethink how this program was going to work because the numbers increased from the high 40s to streams of year nine mm. to over 70 when the third stream was added and so we we introduced the idea then in 2007 of full-time year nine teachers yeah okay and i coordinated the program in 2007 and there were three of us at that time full-time year nine and we only taught year nine students uh and then other teachers came in and filled in uh, for the other subjects that were ne as needed. Yep. 2008 saw a fourth teacher come in full-time and pretty much for the next three or four years after that, we looked after just about the whole of the curriculum with our, uh, with our subject, the four of us. And so that allowed us the flexibility to take the students out without disruption to the rest of the school too mm. much. And it also that came out in my study, actually, in my research, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. Um, it allowed us or it gave us uh, the idea or might be better to put it this way, the students came to see us as people, not teachers. Mm. Spending time with them, uh, walking uh, in the city, uh, service, hands in the dirt, uh, crawling out of our tents of a morning with our hair all over the place and bleary-eyed, just like them, uh, totally changed the relationship we were able to develop with these young people. And due to that, we found a drastic or huge reduction in the... Uh, behavioural issues we had with our students at this age. And um, when I was doing my study, which I began actually part-time in 2008, and it was, uh, and I didn't finish till 2015, uh, sorry, 2013. But one of the things that came out was uh, that the young people reported back, because I did this, my study was, my doctoral studies was on 
experiential education programs and learning in engagement. And I used yep. a case study of this program and what the students said and fed back to me about how they felt this program uh, affected their learning. And a couple of times they reported, uh, in some of the comments they reported back to me was, oh, we see teachers as people too, not, not just a, uh, an authority figure, which yeah, is really wow. significant, I think. And the other thing that I didn't report in my study but came out in some of the data I collected was that in Victoria, the highest absentee rates are in year nine and ten. Okay. And it averages, did then in 2000 and, uh, 2007, 2008, it averaged about 18 to 21 days a year absence from, uh, for the average year nine and year ten student. Yep. I found that at Gilson College, the absentee rate was lower overall than elsewhere, those statistics, uh, about about half that, so the absentee rate across the year was were about uh, uh, nine or ten. But in year nine, the absentee rate was the lowest of all other cohorts. It was actually uh, we I found in the data I collected, the absentee rate was only four to five days a year. Wow! And there was would that include camps or is that school? No, that, that that just school days. Okay, yeah. Uh, that participation rates were high. Uh, that's changed somewhat over the years as well, but there are other reasons for that, I think. Yeah. But the idea that the young people would, uh, the year nine students, would turn up to school, and some of the comments were that uh, the idea of participating in the different things that were going on was important to them, mm. and they enjoyed doing it, even though it might have been hard. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so my study, as I said, was uh, um, completed in 2013, I graduated, yep. and it was a look at and I developed a, uh, a theoretical framework with which uh, to look at the data relating to learning engagement and participation in experiential and, and experiential education programs. Um, and while we take them out of the classroom, uh, outdoor education is specifically looks at um, education or experiences in the outdoors, in the natural environment. Experiential education is a broader term which encompasses that, but it also allows for experiences uh, like urban trips, excursions, uh, service trips uh, and uh, enterprise programs, a whole lot of different kind of experiences beyond um, just experiences in the natural environment. Change happens best in the natural environment we've found, but change can happen and does happen uh, in places uh, where authentic experiences are, are uh, garnered by the mm. people who participate in it. Yeah. Even something as simple as catching a train to the city. Yeah, that's right. It gives yeah. them a sense of independence, uh, uh, a sense that uh, things are okay. Yeah, they can mm. do things all right. Yeah. I was shocked at how many kids had never caught a train before yeah. who were on, that, on those trips. Even though we live in a, uh, a large city, yeah. many of these young people have n yeah, never get the opportunity to, well, particularly by themselves, yeah, yeah. Go and buy a Mikey Tick card and uh, carry, travel on the train. Yeah. Yes, that's Whereas right. for so many people who live in Melbourne, that's their daily commute. They that's do right. it every day. That's right. It's a big part of life. Yeah. yeah. Um, coming back to the rites of passage stuff, why mm -hmm. do you think um, the Western society, our, or in Australia, let's just talk about it in Australia, why do you think we've moved away from rites of passage ceremonies? Yeah. Uh, in the study that I've, in the reading that I've done, it seems to me uh, and the things that I've uh, read, listened to and watched that industrialisation has led us away from the idea of 
going through a rite of passage, a passage of becoming an adult, uh, becoming a, uh, a man or a woman. And part of that will be because society up until the Industrial Revolution, pretty much our, our, what our roles would be in that society were fixed. Uh, our families pretty much determined what we would be and where, what roles, what functions we would fulfil. Industrialisation has changed the way the world works significantly and so the idea of what function you would have became dependent on employment, what work you did and work in an industrialised world is very different to what work was previously to that. Mm. Primitive societies, all primitive societies have had and still have if they're around rites of passage for their young men and young women to show them, uh, to allow the elders, the leaders in uh, the tribe or the society to show them what it means to be part of that tribe, what their responsibilities are, how do they are to behave. We don't really learn that uh, overtly in society. We're meant to pick it up pretty much by osmosis. And where would we pick it up from? Well, by observation of our families, yep. uh, by our extended families, through the media, th through television, movies, uh, movies uh, music. And that may not always be the most positive way of working out or being told what is the, how the best way to behave. Mm. And uh, because many of the people who are involved in those things may not be the mature or uh, adult thinking or adult acting and so they're not going to represent or present the best way to behave. Yeah. And Maybe. so that is why uh, I think in society and if I think back to my childhood, it was really a driver's licence as when and it was nothing formal but it seems to me that is was significant in my experience uh, of the independence, giving, my, giving me independence, giving me rights, but not a lot of responsibility. And so we need to go through that process. Uh, we need to have an experience of what it means to be part of a society, members of a society, and contribute positively to it. I, and we will only learn that if we're mentored into what that might be by mature thinking and acting people. Uh, very important, I think, and it's something that needs to happen for men and women, particularly in for young girls now in, more, in the more recent years, more recent decades, with the um, liberalisation and the freeing up of the roles and responsibility that women have undergone in the last couple of few decades and it should have happened many, many years before that but it hasn't. Young, young women will go through the same experiences uh, that young men have typically gone through for centuries or decades at least and uh, they will need to be mentored in the same way because with rights with freedom comes responsibility someone needs to tell them what that is what the responsibility is yeah how what they need to what it means to behave in a mature adult way mm. yeah. becoming part of the greater community how do you yes. do that well we all want the benefits of a community so and that implies if we want the benefits of it yeah we need to actually contribute to, yeah, to yeah. ensure that that continues on for everybody. Everybody deserves to have the same benefits we do. Mm. Yeah. Um, so we can learn a lot from primitive cultures in that respect uh, and we can doesn't mean that we have to forego the things that we've learned in it, uh, and the things that a modern industrialised and post-industrialised society has to offer but it, we do need to learn what it means to be part of a society or a community and to fully contribute to that. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. 
So um, at the start of the Year 9 program, you go through five rules. Is it five? Mm-hmm. Um, would you be able to explain those? You're in uh, Richard Raw's book, uh, Adam's Return. He says that unless a young man, and I'd suggest uh, it's for all of us, unless we learn these five difficult truths, he calls them, mm. we will never act in a mature or adult way. And the five truths, the five truths are life is hard, you're not that important, your life's not all about you, you're not in control, and you are mortal, you will die. And if you learn those five things early enough, uh, you will, it will save many poor conse- uh, many consequences from poor choices that might be made. And one of the reasons why young women find it will find it more difficult than they have in the past is that women learn these five truths much earlier than men. Well, traditionally they have because when you give birth to a, another human being, you learn very quickly that your life no longer revolves about you. This little being is dependent on you and you are, your life revolves around caring for that new human being. Men don't learn as early or as easily as what women do traditionally. But because our, the way our society is now f- currently operating, uh, many women are not giving birth to children until their late 20s, early 30s or later. And so they're not learning those same rules or the same uh, difficult truths as early as they once were. Mm. And so they will need to be mentored uh, into them. uh, And the sooner we can accept them, the better off we will be Mm. as as people in a society. Yeah. So what were the five rules again, just quickly? Life is hard. Life is hard. You're not that important. You're not that important. Your life's not all about you. Your life's not all about you. You're not in control. You're not in control. And you are going to die. You are going to die. Yeah. Those five, uh, Raw calls them five difficult truths that we all must learn. Yeah. And they may seem negative, but they're not negative if you think about them as uh, the values in which your choices you make, uh, your life choices. Um, Don't look for the easy way out. You know, Mm. life is not necessarily meant to be a bed of roses. Mm. You know, we are sometimes fooled and sold a... uh, uh, sold the story that everything's going to be okay, you know, as long as you get money, you've got a place to live and things, you, you won't yeah, yeah. feel hurt, you won't feel pain. Well, yeah, it's we, not true. Well, we value comfort, but yeah, like it, that doesn't give you fulfilment. That's right, it doesn't give you fulfilment and it also doesn't help you deal with emotional ups and downs when mm. someone hurts you emotionally. It's Which hard. Is inevitable. Yeah, it's inevitable and it yeah. is hard and you need to learn to realise that that's normal. Yeah. It's part of life, it's part of growing up, it's what it means to be human in an imperfect world. Mm. And, uh, yeah, get over it. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you need to get over it. You know? my, son, my son has a T-shirt written on the back of it is, you need to, if you've got a problem, you yeah. need to go to Bunnings. Yeah. Buy some wood, build a bridge <laughs> and get over it. Yeah. And sometimes it's just like that. We should never think that we're uh, entitled to a life of comfort. Mm. We are fortunate to have it and have the opportunity to have a comfortable life, but many people in the world don't. And mm. We need to actually give everyone the opportunity to have as comfortable a life as they can. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, we've talked in the past about values of capitalism. Yes. Um, the values of capitalism being co- competition, freedom and hierarchy. Yep. Those were the three things. Yeah, I, that you I came up with um, an understanding of uh, how our Western world works. What are the val- fundamental values of our Western world? Mm. And the first one that I think, uh, and the way I have tried to describe it, is ownership and control. Mm-hmm. I think that's the underlying value of our Western society the idea that you own things, you control things. 
The second one is hierarchy. The idea that the more you have, the more you control, the more you own, the better you are. And ownership can come in the form of knowledge, it can come in the form of uh, physical ability or it come in, could come in the form of uh, goods or material. It doesn't mm. really matter, it's that way of thinking. And if those things come about by competition, competing against the environment, competing against each other, competing against yourself, whatever it might be. And those three things seem to me to underline a Western capitalist society. Mm. And I think a, uh, that has given us, provided us, provided me with an opportunity to be able to sit down here and talk about these things. Mm. But there is a weakness uh, or there are limitations to this way of thinking. So they're a very immature way of thinking about things. And I would suggest if we pick up and think about what the opposite of those might be, uh, it might be a helpful way of thinking how a world might work in a better way. And so instead of thinking of ownership, control, if we think of it, the opposite of that would be uh, stewardship or custodians where we've got things for sure but we're actually only caring for them for the duration that they're in, we have them. They're not something that we actually... Uh, because what can you take with you when you die? Nothing, you know, there's nothing that you do. Yeah. And so if you think of the, the so instead of ownership, you would have uh, stewardship. Uh, instead of hierarchy, you would have equality, the idea that we're all equal. Yeah. Just because I happen to be born in this part of the world and happen to have this kind of education or whatever it might be, doesn't mean that I'm entitled to anything more than anyone else. And the third part of it, instead of cooperation, you would have uh, collaboration. Uh, sorry, instead of competition, you would have cooperation or co collaboration, the idea that we work together in the society. Now, it's not, it's not um, unusual or not uh, um, surprising that our world works the way it does, you know, the idea because we... Uh, people will have grown up seeing other people have had more than them than them or whatever it might be. Um, and so the idea of wanting to have what someone else has got and the comforts that they might have is not surprising. But the reality is happiness, contentment, well-being is not found in that way of thinking. Mm. Contentment is found when you are at a more mature level when you think about uh, what our responsibilities and rights are and what we can contribute to society. Because most, most people who've been around a while will realise that the best things, and you'll feel the best, if you like, when you contribute back, when you give back, rather than when you get mm. from society. Um, I think a why an author once wrote something uh, along the lines that it is only the selfish heart of the human being that takes to keep everything else in, in, the, in the world takes to give. And so mm. the, the plants or the animals or whatever, they always right. take but they contribute back. It's just humans that actually take and keep for themselves and don't contribute in any way at all. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think um, capitalism would change much if... We, I mean, it would change, but how would it change for the negative, perhaps, if we change those values? Well, the reality is um, people are concerned and motivated by self-interest. Mm. And while ever that's the case, we can have idealistic ways of thinking about things and doing things, but... It won't work while ever people make their choices based on what is in it for me. Mm. If we can make choices based on what's in it for the other person, which is what Jesus says, yep. you know, you always do to others that you want them to do to you. And so you think about things that you do and make those choices based on, well, how's this going to affect other people? That's the best way to do it. Um, 
what would the world look like? Well, it'd be hard to say because I don't think it's ever happened. Yeah, you know, it, I think that'd be the perfect world, I guess. I don't think it? there's a per been ever been a perfect world since, and um, Winston Churchill, I think, made the comment that democracy is the worst form of government you could possibly have, mm. but it's the best we have. It's the only one, only one that works, you know, yeah. the idea that it's based on basically democracy as we know is based on self-interest. It's not really based on as much of what people say. It's not really <laughs> based on the higher value of doing what is best for the other people or yeah. the common good. It's know? not about the collective. It's about the I opinions of each yeah. person in that collective. That's right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, well, the same thing with like systems of government like communism where they wanted to set up a system that was more collective, it still became something that was of self-interest. Well, it does because, you know, Orwell says that uh, everyone's equal, there's some more equal than others. Yep. And that was the, that's the problem, the idea that self-interest takes uh, over from the idea of the ideal. Mm. You, you know, mm. when we immature people, people who have, uh, as Ross says, never been mentored into adulthood, whenever immature people get into roles of responsibility, they will always abuse their authority, always. And that will, they'll make choices based on what's going to be best for them or what's going to be best for the people in their immediate environment, if you like, for mm. their friends. And uh, human nature seems to be, uh, that's the choices we make. Um, doesn't mean we shouldn't strive or think about it better, but we just need to consider that the choices we each make individually um, have to be the best that we can do in the given circumstance. If we think through what, as best we can, according to all the consequences of whatever choices they will be, that's the best we can do, I guess. Yeah. Mm. And we just try our best, I guess. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. Um, right, so... Um, might read out some of the questions from that have been posted up on Instagram. Mm. Um, so we've got Dylan in your tent has asked, ask him how he came up with his five life rules. Yeah, as I, I said to you, I didn't come up with them. They're not mine. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just the one the the uh, conveyor of the ideas. Yeah, uh, Richard Raw came Raw. up with these ideas, uh, and he found or looked at literature and read a lot of different literature and it seemed to be that mature people recognise these five truths and make choices based on the consequences of them. So the idea, recognise that life's not meant to be easy, that life is hard. Recognise that the world doesn't revolve around me, that actually there is a much bigger picture going on here, uh, that I'm, um, I'm not in control. Yeah, you know there are other things going on here. Um, the idea that it's um, uh, and we're also mortal. You know that those things are. Uh, we need to recognise what we have. The fun, the pain, the happiness, and the joy, and also the suffering are all part of uh, of life, and we need to recognise that. And mm. we can't take these things with us. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I think we've covered that pretty well. Yeah. Um, we've got one from Matt Dupla, ex-student. He's asked a pretty heavy one. Have you ever experienced existential angst? <laughs> yes, of course. Anybody who has ever, uh, ever thought about things and wonder, well, what is the point of all this mm. must come up with this idea. Well, well, you know, what's it all mean? Yeah. Why are we here? What is the point of uh, suffering? What is the point of trying to make choices or doing the best, doing things to make us feel better? Why would we do that? Mm. And so uh, anybody who's done any thinking will have experienced that. Mm. And so the answer to it is, have you experienced it? Most definitely. Mm. Uh, and a, as an answer, um, what is the point of life? What does it mean? Well, unless... Well, in my view, unless you, there is a higher power, 
unless there is a power greater than ourselves, there really is no point. Mm. Because otherwise, if we are the result or if we are here as a uh, by accident, purely chance, uh, nature taking its course uh, and evolutionary processes, um, if that's the reason why we exist, the, uh, the um, Greeks, the ancient Greeks uh, who came up with the idea that we're just here to maximise pleasure and minimise pain would be the way we should live. Mm. Uh, but I think life's much more than that. I think we have a higher purpose or, uh, and, uh, and that purpose is to do with those, the three alternate views. I think the idea is we are stewards. We are here as equals in this place and we are here to cooperate and collaborate together. Mm. I think that's the way we should make and the basis on which we should make our choices. Yeah. So that's something, having that, those ideas combats that existential... Yeah, well, the emptiness that you feel if you have no purpose uh, is dealt with, I believe, because there will be no purpose found in ownership. The more you have, people who have immense wealth will tell us that there's nothing there, you know, the guys who have made it to the top in whatever field it might be, mm. if it be music, movies, sport, whatever, it doesn't really matter. When you are there, um, there is nothing. You haven't really, you know, you're at the pinnacle, but there's always someone uh, going to come after you and things yeah, like yeah. that. It's never I enough. believe there is a, uh, yeah, we are here for, uh, for a higher purpose. Yeah. Yep. And that makes a whole lot of difference in how I think about why I exist, why I'm here and yep. what the point of life is. Yeah, yeah, great answer. Um, all right, we've got two questions from two Year 9 students, Bowie and Sarah. One of them has asked, what do you think of 2018 Year 9s and who is your favourite student in Year 9, 2018? <laughs> um, if you think about those five, que five difficult truths, they probably haven't learned... <laughs> the, what the five <laughs> difficult truths really mean. Um, each year, I've noticed, and I've, I've been, I think I've, this is my uh, 12th year nine class that I've been involved in. Mm. Each cohort that goes through has its own unique characteristics and the students within it are all individuals. And everyone, every one of the students that I've been worked with are, um, are different, unique, have their own idiosyncrasies, have their own uh, positives and negatives. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, uh, that one is better than the other, the idea that one yep. is superior to the other, is really a wrong way of thinking about it. I yeah. like to think of it more from the idea or from the perspective that what is this year going to offer and how are we going to, as year nine teachers, how are we going to uh, introduce them to uh, what they possibly can be? How mm. can we get an environment so each of these participants, each of these young people can become who I believe God's created them to be? Because I believe God's created us all for a purpose. Yeah, yeah. And uh, finding out that is part of what this year nine program is about mm. finding out why they're here and how they can contribute to make the world a better place yeah and from my observation that's true of the individual but also of the collective cohort itself as you see you, you see them change as a group how they interact with each other and yeah. that kind of thing which is yeah pretty cool to see absolutely I, I get these questions from well the current year 10s and they're like oh what do you think of these current year nines it's like oh you're both very different year That's levels right. um and then they go yeah yeah they're different. but you like us more don't you <laughs> like, oh, That's right. I, I can't tell you that it's like you just said yeah. it's the wrong way of looking at it no when you tell different. them that if that's what they need to hear but really it's it's not really about that it's not uh, yeah uh, treating each person as an individual as a uh, as a creation of God is what's important, and the cohorts mm. together uh, interact, operate, and behave differently. You know, the whole the each year level I've noticed they're all different to each other. Yeah, 
very different to each other. Very different. And it's because it's a makeup of individuals, you know, and it's yep. not a really, a, it is a collective. And our schooling is organised in such a way that, which is a, uh, another thing that really is a limiting factor, <coughs> pardon me, uh, on how, uh, how our society works. Nowhere else in society are, uh, as Ken Robinson says, nowhere else in society are groups of children put together by a year of manufacture. <laughs> so if you think about it, if you got them in prep or foundation yeah. as five-year-olds and they will have been born, what is it, 2019 next year? Yeah. So they will have been born in 2018, uh, yeah. sorry, 2014. Yeah. And so they will all be together and the 2013s will be together in year one and the 2012s in year two and so forth. Yeah. Uh, it's not really a normal way to which live our lives. Uh, but that's how schools, based on uh, the, uh, the model in which it's developed, an industrial age model, it's mm. probably time to change, most definitely is. Yeah, yeah. But we're stuck with that. But, uh, and so the whole comparison against each other thing that comes out of that the competitiveness of it mm. uh, is really a consequence of the way school is organized and structured which is a whole nother story if you like a whole yeah, other thing i think we could do another whole <laughs> podcast about that that's right well there, there's many have been done and continue to be done but yeah, it does yeah. need to change that's right there are schools that are changing aren't they slowly it is but it's sort of like a uh, i like to picture it as a great big rock rolling down a hill yep uh very very difficult to stop it from rolling down the hill yeah and that's what the current education system is oh, yeah. all we're doing is trying to just turn it a little bit left or right you yep. know it's still rolling down the hill we created this huge yeah. thing yeah we just uh to actually reconceive it and re uh, and think about it in a totally different way is a very very difficult mm. thing to do yeah I just remember thinking, um, I'm reading an article about a school in eastern suburbs of Melbourne who they organise classes not around the age but around interests and yes, that's right. what they choose. Yeah, yeah, they silo them according to uh, ability, if you like, or interest in subjects and say so you could have a year 9 or 10 or 11 student with a year 3 or 4 student yeah, and, well, and so forth, whatever it might be, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, that's a... Another way of thinking, yeah, thinking about or structuring or organising it, and it uh, it has merit as well and works really well for some people. Mm. Um, but uh, the idea of how it alternatives, uh, yeah, yeah, I haven't had, haven't written it down to actually what what uh, might work best. But I think it needs to be a uh, flexible enough. To suit the circumstances in which the current, you know, the young people are in at the time, and that's not very easy to have a flexible system when you're bound so much by economics and by uh, processes and procedures set in place by yep. governments and uh, institutions. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we systematised everything. And that's, that's right. You've got to go through the systems. Yeah, it makes it difficult for sure. Um, last question from Sam in Year Ten. Plans for retirement? Yeah, great question, Sam. Um, my plans for retirement are going to move uh, to a little bit warmer climate, although uh, it's pretty been pretty warm here for the last day or two. But um, yeah, warm mid mid north coast in New South Wales. But uh, then travel a little, but more uh, as well. Like to do some writing. Oh yeah. Uh, family history. Uh, do some. You learn to write when you do study, and so we'll put a bit of that into practice. I think there's a few articles I'd like to do. I, my last trip up in the high country while I was with the boys up there, I took the opportunity to write down things I've learned from bushwalking, mm. and so I've got a list of headings that I'll, I'll flesh out over the next few months, and I think that might become an article for Teach magazine, maybe. Yeah, nice. Okay. Uh, but other things like the photography, while you travel around, uh, golf seems like a good idea. Yeah, golf and fishing. But yeah, and maybe even a bit back into some painting. But we'll see how things Paint work out. Yeah, painter. 
Well, yes, I did my te- early my early teacher training was as a visual art. Oh, right. And industrial technology teacher. Yeah. And so um, uh, that's diverted over the years to many things. Creativity is used in many ways. The canvas on which you work uh, does not necessarily just have to be a piece of paper. Yeah. A computer screen or uh, anything specific like that. It can be a uh, a learning for life program. Mm. Can be a canvas in which you work. Yeah, yeah. I've I've often thought of just my life as a canvas. Yeah, like, that's right. Um, well, particularly a few years ago, I did six months of travelling, and that to me, that six months was a canvas. What what could I do in that period of time that would yep. create that's a right. memory? Yeah, that's right. And so the thing that I would like to leave with everybody is: what will your epitaph be? What would be written on your mm. Tombstone. Yeah. What would you want people to say or what will they write about you? And I'd like to think that uh, each of us would have something said about the positive contribution they've been able to make to the world. Not that they've amassed a great amount of knowledge or a great amount of wealth or a great amount of friends or whatever it might be, but Mm. this person's been able to contribute in a positive way. Mm. and that's what I think is important yeah. what a great note to end on yeah, um, yeah thank you Tony for your time thank today you. Appreci- yeah. really appreciate you having you on here um, and also just on a personal note seeing what you've done in the program um, I think you've well and truly left your mark at this school yeah. as I said on awards night a couple of nights ago uh, nothing happens in isolation Mm, yeah, yeah. It yeah. always got to be a context, you know. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough to be s- surrounded by people who have been uh, who've contributed, given me opportunity to contribute, and to explore ideas and implement them and changes. And yeah, that's mm. important. Yeah, nothing happens in isolation. You need good group of friends and people around you. Community is crucial. Yeah. 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 For sure, and that's why I'm I'm just keen to see where this goes. This this learning for life program, even after you've gone, I'm sure it will continue. It will be different, but it will yeah. it will still as be it there. Be. Yeah, yeah as, as it should be. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to keeping on going with it. And Good. I really believe in it. I've seen the changes, and yep. yeah, I love it. So I hope um, all the listeners you enjoyed the conversation today. Um, yeah, feel free in future episodes to engage on Instagram or maybe Facebook. I'll do it as well. Um, you're always welcome to ask questions to my guests. And um, yeah, I wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you so much for listening um, and I'll see you in the new year.